Thank you for downloading this sermon brought to you by the preaching ministry of Liberty Baptist Church of Las Vegas, Nevada, Dr. David Tice. For more sermons in both audio and video format, we encourage you to visit experienceliberty.com. Also, for a word of encouragement, insight, and biblical inspiration, follow Pastor David Tice's blog at davidtice.com. So without further ado, let's open our hearts to the Word of God. And as you find your places and find your Bibles, could you open them up and find the passage of Scripture found in Joshua chapter number 7. I don't know about you, but whenever I hear our choir sing, when I come and listen to the music, I'm just energized and ready to do what God wants me to do or to see what God has for me in this, uh, in this service today. I'm so looking forward to Easter Sunday. I'm glad that I'm a Christian, aren't you? I'm glad that I don't serve a dead God or just look at some statue or just hear some things that are supposed to solace me in times of struggle. I'm glad that I can connect with the true God of the universe, the one who spoke life into existence, who breathed into the nostrils of man, breath of life, and man became a living soul. You might say, how do you know that God is alive? Well, I talked to him this morning, spent some time with him this morning. He's real. He's alive. His name is Jesus Christ, and if you don't know him, he wants you to know for sure you're going to heaven. He died on a cross, was buried, and rose again so that you could have the confidence that heaven was your home, have forgiveness of your sins, and live a life of purpose that would bring honor to him. Wasn't it encouraging to see three people follow the Lord and believers' baptism this morning? Wasn't that special? It was so neat. Uh, I, two of them specific, I got to see Trishana follow the Lord and Believer's baptism. She's been coming to church here for two years, and it's about time, Trishana. We're glad that you're part of the church officially. So good to have you, and uh, thank, welcome to the church, and when you see her, make sure you welcome her. And then I saw Reagan Fanoy got baptized this morning. Reagan is just a few months older than my son, and I remember when we found out that there was going to be a Reagan Fanoy, and her mom was expecting, and so congratulations, good job. It took you a little bit longer, but we'll give you more grace than Trishana, since you're only, <laughs> since you're only 10 years old. 10 or 11? 10, okay, good. Yeah, it took you 10 years, but we got you there. Fantastic, way to go. If you got your Bibles, open them up to the book of Joshua, chapter number 7, and we will get into the text in just a few moments, but I want to challenge your thinking with this idea of a new sermon series that we begin today. It's going to be three weeks that we're going to study this topic entitled Shattered. We live in a world that desires perfection. We have things like selfies, which is new words. It's a pretty contemporaneous word. We never knew what a selfie was when I was growing up. Today, if you want to take a picture of yourself, you take a picture and you're like, oh, I don't like that. Trash it. Oh, I don't like that one. Oh, do I look fat? Oh, this is a better angle. Just remember this. You don't take any weird pictures. Just sometimes you look like that. There's no such thing <laughs> as a weird... You just look like that sometimes. <laughs> but, but this idea, oh, I'm going to put a filter on this or I want to make sure that it looks good... That wasn't, before, you, before we had all these digital cameras, you used to have to take a picture and find out a week later whether or not that picture was a one that you would keep or let go. We live in a world that desires perfection. We want to see perfection. We want to see that which is good. We want to demonstrate that which is good. We don't want people to know our faults. We have filters. We have social media posts. We have a hundred different things to try to bring perfection into a person's life. A couple weeks ago, 
Oh, it's been a couple months ago. I was introduced to this group of people. If you recognize this logo or have seen this before, raise your hand. Okay, so I was introduced to these people. If you have a 10-year-old son, you probably know about these people. They are social media, um, uh, a social media group, and they made their marks. They became well-known by doing trick shots. They would do trick shots like this where they would walk and they would say, I'm going to put a basketball in the hoop and they would just walk and talk and the ball would go in or they might throw a football or they might throw a baseball and they would do all these different trick shots and they became uh, huge, huge influencers on social media. In fact, at Christmas time, Luke said, Dad, can I get a Dude Perfect hat? So he got a Dude Perfect hat. He wanted a Dude Perfect sweatshirt because Dude Perfect is cool. So about a year and a half ago, they decided that they were going to go to the stratosphere or the strat. (laughs) And as they went down there, they were going to make the tallest basketball shot that has ever been made. And they recorded it. This is what it looked like. These are the guys. Now you got to watch it from the side. Watch, here it goes from the side angle. Pretty impressive, isn't that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is, that's worth a follow, and I get nothing for endorsing them today. They're a group of Christian guys, but I got to think, that's absolutely incredible. They took that basketball, and off the top of the stratosphere, they put it in a hoop. Now, what that video doesn't show you is that it took them three days and over 900 tries. <laughs> but after three days and over 900 tries, they almost shut it down because they had basketballs flying down on Las Vegas Boulevard and <laughs> pigeons dying and a number of different things. But they did it after three days and 900 shots. Now, if you saw that one shot, you'd be like, whoa, those dudes are perfect. But in reality, there was a whole lot that went into making that happen. We desire to live in a world that's perfect. And that's not a bad thing. In fact, when God created this world, he created this world with absolute perfection. The Bible records that creation in Genesis chapter 1 and verse number 31. The Bible says, and God saw everything that he had made. Everything that he had made. He created the sun, and the sun was a perfect sun. He created the moon. The moon was a perfect moon. If he would have created a wall, it would have been the perfect wall. But he didn't create a wall. He created plants. He created animals. He created oceans. He created everything. And the Bible says that everything he created was not just good, but what was it? It was, it was very good. God created this utopia of an earth. And the Bible tells us evening and morning, they were the first day or were the sixth day. And so God in six days time created everything in this universe and it was good. But today, if you were to walk around, you would see things that are not good. It's not perfect. 
How many of you experienced the wind yesterday? If you go out back and see our roof on this building, you'll see that our, our roof experienced the wind. There are a couple cars in the front row that experienced our roof after yesterday because it blew about 100 shingles off the roof yesterday. You say, well, if the world is good, why do we have things like tornadoes and hurricanes? And why do we have bad things that go on and war and strife? And even more personally, why is there things like cancer and disease? How's that get into this place? This place that was supposed to be perfect became shattered. In Genesis, excuse me, in Joshua chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, which is going to be our text for today, we're going to see a similar happenstance and how this great opportunity, this wonderful place where God's people were experiencing momentum, were seeing victories, were understanding the joy of God's blessing and presence in their life, within an instant it becomes shattered. And I hope this will be a help to you because today we're going to look at the ingredients to failure. These are things you've got to be mindful of because as you incorporate them in your life or if you see them come into your life, you do not want to add these ingredients. In Joshua chapter 7 and verse number 1, the Bible tells us this. But the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing for Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, he took of the accursed thing. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. As a way of remembering how we get to this point, God's people were commissioned to go into a place called the Promised Land. Generations before, God had told Abraham and his descendants that this would be their land. Every place that they could see would be their land. Wherever their foot would touch would be their land. And now was the time of God's occupation of the land of Israel. They had enemies that they would have to face. The very first enemy was the city of Jericho. Oh, and it was a formidable enemy. They were 30-foot walls that were 30-foot wide. And the Bible tells us this impenetrable force had no manly way of being able to overcome them. But God... And so Joshua, standing there on the precipice of battle, interacts with God Almighty. And God tells him, here's the battle plan. You walk around the city six days, one time apiece. On the seventh day, you walk around it seven times. You're going to blow a trumpet. There's going to be victory. And the walls will fall down. And it happened just like God said it would happen. The Bible tells us that God's people lived in obedience and as they walked the circumference of those walls, those multiple days, and then on that seventh day, they walked around seven times. God knocked down the walls just as if they were a house of cards. And they fell to the ground and God's people went in. But there was one caveat to this battle. There was one rule that God said, don't violate this. Don't touch any of the cursed thing. It was not uncommon whenever you had victory over a people group or a nation to take and seize all of the prize or the booty of that land. Take the gold, take the silver. God said, when you go into Jericho, don't take the gold, don't take the silver, don't take the precious things. In fact, let's harvest all of those things and we'll bring them into the tabernacle for the service of God. So in Jericho, God said, don't touch any of those cursed things. In Joshua chapter 6 and verse number 18, 
And so nobody touched any of those cursed things when they gathered all of the gold and when they gathered all of the silver and when they gathered all of the treasure, it was brought into the tabernacle of God and left there as an offering to God Almighty except for Achan. In verse number one, the Bible says, Achan committed a trespass. In the battle, in the midst of the tumult, no doubt he probably would have had something like a, a backpack. I doubt he had a fanny pack, but I, he, probably had a, he probably had a backpack or something to carry weapons or provisions with him. And in the battle, something caught his eye, and perhaps it was a gold cup or a gold chalice. And when he looked at it, he imagined the wealth of that golden thing, and he he put it into his backpack. And then as he was fighting, perhaps there was a, a dozen or 15 silver coins scattered around, and he, he picks them up, and in the middle of the battle, he inserts them into his pocket. There's a Babylonian garment that he thinks maybe his wife would look attractive in, and so he gathers that, and he puts it inside of himself, and he continues in the battle, and he continues to war, and he continues to go through. Everything seems to be okay. And though all... Of Israel felt it was a good day. God always knows your sin. See, you can fool me and you can fool others, but you could never fool God, right? So he includes these ingredients that bring failure. The first ingredient is this it only takes one. It only takes one. It only takes one Judas. It only takes one Benedict Arnold. It only took one airplane to bring down a tower. It only takes one. The Bible tells us this, that this beautiful created world that had no spot, had no wrinkle, had no issues with it, had one command, don't touch of the fruit of the garden. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5 and verse number 12, wherefore, as by one man's sin entered into the world, and what? Death by sin. So death passed upon how many men? all men for that all have sinned there's a truth here that it's so important for us to understand our lives matter it only takes one person it only takes one person to mess up a whole lot of good things your life matters the bible teaches us about Achan that he was a leader he was a person of influence. If you read verse number one, the Bible tells us that he was the grandson of Zerah, who was the descendant of Judah. The tribe of Judah was the most prominent tribe in Israel. From Judah is where the Messiah would come. From Judah is where the battle should be led from. And this person who knew better, this person who knew the Lord, this person who was acting courageously and with vigor on this day, in his leadership, he sins against Almighty God. Make no doubt about it. If you're a dad in here, you have influence. And your decisions matter. If you're a mom in here and you have influence, if you're a spouse, if you're a child, how many parents have gone through sleepless nights because of the decisions of an adult child? Not a toddler, not somebody needing changing. An adult child 
who's making reckless decisions because of the disobedience of one, it's bringing in great heartache to a number of different people. Your life matters, and what you do with your decisions and how you act with your life, it makes a great deal. Achan was a leader. Not only was he a leader, but his decisions affected the whole. Did you see what the Bible says in verse number one? Look what the Bible says in two different places. It says, but the children of Israel. Well, was it all the children of Israel who were looting the place? No, it was just one. Notice what the Bible tells us at the bottom of verse number seven. The Bible tells us that Achan, he took of the accursed thing, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against, does it say Achan? No, it says the children of Israel. God's not called you to live an isolated Lone Ranger life. None of us are intended to be Arnold Schwarzenegger or Jack Bauer. God desires for us to live in community. That's why he gives us the local church, because people like Julius need not to be Lone Ranger. They need the local church. And people like Sarah Marlar need a local church community. And Kathy Jenkins, she needs a church. We are supposed to live in community. The Bible tells us that we are part of the family of God. Isn't that beautiful? But as many as received him, John 1, 12, to them gave he power to become the what? Sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. As a child of God, when we live right, it blesses everybody else. But whenever we do wrong, it brings hurt to everybody else. You don't live as an island unto yourself. Your decisions affect other people. And here's Achan. The Bible tells us that God's anger is not poured out on Achan alone. God's anger is poured out upon the children of Israel. Isn't that interesting? My decisions affect other people. Achan was a leader. His failures affected the whole. And God does not tolerate sin. He just doesn't. Never mistake the mercy of God for the tolerance of God. Just because God doesn't smash us like the cockroaches we are doesn't mean that we are, uh, that he is tolerant of the things that we do. Just because we don't get slammed into a light pole every time we do something wrong, don't take that as if God is somehow impotent to be able to execute his work. The Bible tells us that God hates sin. He hates sin so greatly that he put himself on a cross. God took nails in his hands. He got his back beaten and his beard ripped out of his face because sin is not tolerated by God. He hates it so much. He disdains it so much that he took that sin. The Bible says, who his own self bear our sins in his body on a tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes we are healed. We come to Jesus, not because he's old and tolerant and like, oh yes, I'll let you in. No, he hates sin so much that Jesus died to pay for sin. Sin isn't winked at by Almighty God. Sin isn't tolerated by Almighty God. God hates sin. I want you to see the second ingredient. Not only does it take one person to bring failure, but number two, there's a sin of omission that takes place in this passage. After the great battle at, at, at Jericho, the Bible says in verse number two, the Bible says this, and Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai. Ai is a small town. It's not a computer program. 
Ai in this context is a, it's a small little village where Jericho was a, a metropolis of wealth and uh, vigor and strength and military prowess. Ai would have been in comparison, it would have been Overton. It would have been the Moapa Valley. So if you think of Las Vegas as Jericho, and sometimes you could think of it as that way, if you think of Las Vegas, what is, what is Ai? Well, it's, a, it's Sandy Valley. It's prim. It's just a, a little thing in comparison to Jericho. It's just a small little town. The Bible says in verse number two, and Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Beth Haven, on the east side of Bethel, and he spake unto them, saying, go up and view the country. And the men went up and viewed Ai. Now, there's something that is missing between verse number one and verse number two. In verse number one and verse number two, there is no record of accountability. There's no place after the victory of Jericho, at least recorded in Scripture, where they do a debrief, where they talk through the entire event. How did it go? How did it go? What did you see? How did you feel? What was your experience? And there is no record of all the gold being brought into the treasury of God's house. There was no settling down and saying, hey, did, uh, did you guys get the gold? Is all the gold in? Is all the gold in? There is at least in Scripture no record of accountability. Number two, why, why is that important? Because the Bible tells us this, that we are to confess our faults one to another. One of the reasons God doesn't want us to live siloed and alone is because I have the great need to share with other people I mess up. You ever seen a guy who won't admit his failure? If you have, say yes. You ever seen a woman who won't admit when she's wrong? If you have, say yes. If it's your spouse, don't look at them. <laughs> we have a problem as human beings, and the problem as human beings is we never want to admit when we've done something wrong or we've done something inappropriate. And one of the best things that we can do as friends is put ourselves in accountability one to another. Recently, I talked with a young man, and he was uh, sharing with me different things going on in his life, and I asked him, do you have an accountability partner on your phone? He said, yeah, in fact, I have all adult content locked out of my phone, and the only person that has the password to unlock it is my friend who lives several states away. I'm like, whoa, way to go, bro. I appreciate you. You know why? Because in his life, he was setting up accountability a place where he could be called and to check on. Who can check on you? Do you have anybody that can check you? There was a song when I was growing up that said, you better check yourself before you wreck yourself. <laughs> and only the bad people in this room know that song. <laughs> Joe, I find it humorous that you are laughing loudest. That's what's funny to me. <laughs> But there is a great principle in Scripture, and the principle in Scripture is this, that you need other people to share life with. And when you confess your faults one to another, the Bible says we pray for one another. Why? That we may be healed. There's a specific context here about, I believe, physical hearing, but the Bible says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. There's no accountability between verses 1 and 2. They omit that debrief, and in that omission, 
they go headlong into battle number two. The Bible teaches us this, that we should be people who are trusting, but we verify. In Proverbs chapter 25 and verse 19, it says, confidence in, in unfaithful man is like, uh, in a time of trouble, is like a broken tooth and a foot out of joint. When you put confidence in somebody that uh, doesn't come through, it's worse than a broken tooth or a foot out of joint. All of us could probably share an experience when we trusted somebody with information, with money, with a relationship, maybe even our heart. And we trusted them with something and they violated that trust. Oh, you can get a cap on your tooth and you can put a cast on your foot, but that's a hard thing to come back from when somebody's violated your trust. The Bible teaches us a principle that we should trust people. We should be trusting. The Bible uses, in the New Testament, uses this phrase, be wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. It's not Christian to be going around being cynical, like, hmm, what do you mean by that? What did you mean by that? I don't think they like me. I don't like them. <laughs> we're supposed to be people who are trusting, but we're all supposed to be people who are wise. So in this context, they omitted this great debrief, they omitted the need to verify, and there's a reckless celebration. Yeah, all right, it's great. The Bible teaches us in Matthew chapter 24 that when Jesus comes again, it'll be like the days of Noah. The day before it started raining and the floods overtook the entire earth, there were great celebrations. It was not a dark time. It wasn't like, bum, bum, bum. People weren't wearing masks and huddled inside of their houses the day before the flood came. The day before the flood came, there were people reveling and having parties and celebrations, getting married and being given in marriage. They were eating and drinking as if it was no big deal. And then Noah's flood came. The Bible tells us that the return of the Lord will be just like that. What an interesting phrase. That so oftentimes we live our lives recklessly without taking thought or account of ourselves and account of others. I think this principle of omission teaches us that there should be times regularly where we go before God and say, God, am I good with you? Are you and I good? Are we clean? Is there anything I need to make right with you? That's one of the reasons why we have a Lord's Supper. The Bible teaches us that the Lord's Supper is a time of purity, where when I take that bread, I am, I'm remembering that Jesus' body was mashed and beaten and crunched up and striped for my sins. And I say, Lord, forgive me for my sin. One of the reasons I, we drink of that cup is because that cup, that juice, is a representation of Jesus' blood that was spilt for our sins. And that remembrance brings us to a place of purity. There should be regular times of checking ourselves and accountability before God. Are you clean before God? And then there's good. It's good to put ourselves in accountability to others. That's why we go to church. We go to church because we need one another. They omitted this. So there is this sin, this ingredient. One person can make a big deal. Number two, there is an omission of sin. Notice number three, they go into a place of overconfidence. In verse three, the Bible says, and they returned to Joshua, and they said unto him, let not all the people go up. We looked at AI, and it's like prim. Their roller coaster is not even working. Let not all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and smite Ai. 
And make not all the people to labor thither, for they are but a few. Notice three things that happen here. Number one, they are overconfidence. It's demonstrated by the, by the fact that they are only going to take a few. They want some other people just to rest. And they forget, number three, that this was a struggle for all. There is a, there, it could have probably been done with two or 3,000, but God didn't call two or 3,000 people to engage in this battle. It was a battle for every single person to be part of. And this overconfidence, this pride that says, I don't need this, the arrogance that says, I don't need this, I don't need God's help, I, don't need, I can take care of this, let's just take a few. That arrogant, proud attitude is going to lead them in a place of bad, bad destruction. The Bible says in the book of 1 Peter, it says this, that God resisteth the proud. Would you put your hand up for a second, John, and just push against me? The Bible says this, that God resists the proud. Good job. You're a strong man. God resists the proud. The Bible doesn't teach that God's just like, oh, the proud, I'm going to leave them alone. No, he says that God is actively resisting against the proud. If John wanted to, he could get up and he could get down. But if I'm doing this on John, if I'm resisting him, he probably could overtake me because he's a very masculine man. But... But the truth is this, it becomes a whole lot more difficult for him. When we allow pride to come into our life, God's not just indifferent. The Bible says God's resisting the proud. Kyle, I don't want God pushing down against me. That's not where I want to be. But in their overconfidence, oh, we'll just take a few. We'll let some people rest. It was a tough week. You guys, you take a three-day weekend. We'll take care of this. And abandoning the struggle for all led them to overconfidence. Notice what verse number four says. They become overtaken. This place where they should have just gone in and run roughshod over a matter of few moments, uh, maybe an hour or two, the Bible tells us they become overtaken in verse number four. So there went up thither of the people about 3,000 men, but the Bible says, and they fled before the men of Ai. These 3,000 men, they go up, all right, we're here to destroy. And the Bible tells us in a matter of moments, they're turning tail and they're running. And they're running not because they've come to a good place, it's because this whole battle is ruined. And the reception that should have been parties and celebrations and streamers and piñatas, all of that is not met because they were overtaken and a place where they should have walked in with great confidence and nobility now they find themselves running and ruined and the reception is very very poor we had a dog named lassie growing up and lassie was not allowed inside she was a long-haired border collie and when she would shed her her hair would go everywhere so mom said she's an outside dog and we had good good doghouse for her. In fact, we even had an air-conditioned doghouse for her one time that Mr. Burkhart made. And Lassie lived outside. But when it was nice days like this, those spring days, we would leave the sliding glass door open. And Lassie, Lassie would rest her head on the ledge of that sliding glass door. And if mom was upstairs, she would oftentimes creep in. She'd put that paw in. She'd put that second paw in. She'd scooch that body inside. And she kind of did, we had linoleum floors. She kind of did the slide all the way, all the way to the line of the carpet. And my mom would be upstairs and we were homeschooled. So I was in the kit, I, was, I would do my school oftentimes in the living room. 
and I would watch this whole song and dance go. And it was funny because my mom had a distinct walk down the stairs. How many of you had a mother who had a distinct walk down the stairs? You had one of those? So when mom, all of us did, whenever I came down the stairs, I would grab that thing and I would run around. And then Josh, he would come down, he'd kind of skip down the stairs. Charity would fall down the stairs. But my mom, <laughs> my mom, <laughs> <laughs> it's true, isn't it, Charity? <laughs> Dinner's ready. <laughs> but my mom had that distinct come down the stairs when you know mom's coming down the stairs. And I would watch Lassie as my mom would walk down the stairs. Lassie, who's laying now with her head on the carpet, full in on the kitchen, enjoying the, the, the linoleum beneath her. Lassie would get up, and when my, those steps started coming down, Lassie would go outside with her tail between her legs, with her tail between her legs, and she would go and she would sit right outside the door and just sit there like this. <laughs> Hello, mother. <laughs> just enjoying these outdoors. <laughs> remember one time, and I don't remember which one of us did it, but Lassie had snuck inside, and it was a long time that mom was upstairs, and some, mom hollered down, shut the back door, I'm turning the air condition on. And so somebody went, but Lassie had snuck inside. So we shut the back door, and it was a sliding glass door, and mom came downstairs with her distinct coming downstairs steps, and as she was coming downstairs, Lassie perked up because she didn't want to get beat, and so, she, <laughs> so she, would, she would go outside, and as she started scampering towards the door, the door was shut, and Lassie went, <laughs> right in the glass door. And on that day, my mom had compassion. Why? Who did this to the dog? Because <laughs> her, her tails was between her legs, and she would, knew she was doing she, something she wasn't supposed to be doing. That's how the men of AI, AI are on this day. They go to battle. And the great victory that they're supposed to be celebrating because of their pride, because of their arrogance, because of their lack of, of, of accountability, and because of the sin of one person, they are overtaken. And it gets even worse than that. Because in verse number 36, the Bible says this. Excuse me, verse number 5, the Bible says this. And the men of Ai smote of them about 36 men. For they chased them from before the gate, even to Shabarim, and smote them in the going down, wherefore the hearts of the people melted and became as water. It wasn't just a day, a day when they lost a nail-biter in overtime and everyone feels sad. When all of the 3,000 soldiers return, there are 36 empty beds that night. At the dinner table, there are 36 empty slots. There's 36 families that don't have a father, a son, a dad. There's 36 families. And perhaps in the great host of things, maybe 36 doesn't mean a lot to all of the millions of Israel, but 36 meant everything to those 36 families. And the sin of one and the omission of accountability the overconfidence and the overtaken nature that comes whenever we are fighting against God rather than enjoying his blessing led to an obituary of 36 deaths. Sin always brings death. 
The Bible says this in Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death. You want a sure bet? Something that pays out 100% of the time? Sin always brings death. 100% of the time. 100% of the time. Man, that, that's not good. That's so, so true. That's why we can't deal with sin on our own. That's why we can't fight this battle exclusively or independently. That's why you'll get wrecked in and of yourself. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You don't have to live in the shadow and shame of sin. The same verse that says that God will judge sin so harshly that it brings death is the same God that says, I've provided mercy, a gift. I will give grace. You see, it's like that for eternity. If we decide that, well, I'll be good enough. I can get to heaven on my own. I don't need the Lord. I don't need God. I'll just be good enough and we'll figure it out once we get there. The wages of your sin will damn you to a place so bad the Bible calls it hell. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Oh, that's a beautiful thing. God loves us so much that he died on a cross to pay for our sins. Jesus took nails in his hands, a crown of thorns upon his head. He was beaten and spit upon, mocked and ridiculed. The Bible tells us that Jesus died because our sin is so bad. And he offers his life as a gift to us. He'll give eternal life to anyone who will put their faith and trust in him. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Are you trying to get to heaven on your own or do you have the forgiveness of Jesus Christ? For those who put their faith in Jesus, the same is true on the other side of salvation. That we can't live our lives just struggling and working. In the book of Galatians chapter 3, verse 2 and 3, the apostle Paul says, O foolish Galatians, be, having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect through the deeds of the flesh? No, we don't work harder, wake up 15 minutes earlier so that we can please God. We live our lives saying, God, I want to live in obedience to you. What does your word tell me to do? How am I supposed to be accountable? I need to avoid these things. I need to live in light of your truth. And when we live in light of his truth, God's blessing comes into our life. But if we don't, the Bible says, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and he scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. So the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. On this day, there was a group of God's people that had lived with the sin of one. There's a group of God's people who had omitted the accountability necessary. They became overconfident in their own nobility, and they were overtaken by the enemy, and they find an obituary where 36 men are dead. Death always leaves a void. We know that, don't we? Even in a circumstance where it might be uh, an expected death, months or perhaps years, death always leaves a void. And on this evening, at the Battle of Ai, 36 empty beds, 36 empty dinner tables, 36 families grieve the loss. In verse number six, the Bible says this, and Joshua rent his clothes. Have you ever questioned God? 
God, why, why did you do this? It's exactly what Joshua does. God, what, what in the world? What in the world? Can you see the questions of God here? He fell on his face to the earth in front of the ark of the Lord right at the eventide, and, and he and all the elders of Israel, they put dust upon their heads. And verse 7 says, And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, wherefore hast thou brought this people over Jordan to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites and to destroy us? Would to God we were happy. We would have been content and dwelt on the other side of Jordan. O Lord, what shall I say when Israel turneth their backs before their enemies were running like a dog with their tail between their legs. God, why did you let this happen? Was it God's fault? No. But he's offended. He begins questioning God. You know that it's okay to question God? God, tell me why. God, show me why. God never says, don't question me, sit down, shut up. That's not our God. In fact, the Bible tells us, he says, come, let us reason together. He invites you. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man open the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. Revelation chapter 3, verse number 20. God desires communion. He desires your questions. There's nothing wrong with questioning God. And Joshua does just that. Here's five potential answers. I encourage you to take a screenshot of this because I'm going to go through it quickly. When I question God, here's five answers. This is not an exhaustive list. This is not, uh, it might be even too long of a list, but here's five answers that will give us a reason at times why there's a struggle or a difficulty in my life. Five answers. Number one, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number six says, Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteth, and he scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. This is a list that I will oftentimes refer to. Why is this bad thing happening? Why is this difficult thing happening? Number one, is there a personal sin in my life? Is there something in my life where I am not in the blessing of God? I will often ask that question because I want to make sure I'm in a right place with God. Number two, why do bad things happen? Why did this struggle happen? Sometimes, Bad things happen because we live in a broken world. In Romans chapter 8 and verse number 22, the Bible tells us that all of creation groaneth within itself. Whenever Adam and Eve sinned and brought sin into the world, that sin was a contagion that brought death everywhere. So cancer, disease, um, car wrecks, drug abuse, violence, where's that all go back to? Well, there is personal responsibility, but there is also, why do we have things like 70-mile-per-hour winds that blow off the shingles of a church? Because we live in a broken world. And in this broken world, there is a, a whole creation that groaneth within itself. It's not always the sin of a certain person that brought uh, brokenness into your life. Number three, sometimes God will allow struggles or trials to come into our lives because it's a test of our faith. He's demonstrating to us, you're here, you can even grow further. James chapter 1 and verse number 3 says, the trying of our faith bringeth patience. Oh, so sometimes God will allow me to go through a difficult season to demonstrate to me there's more that I can do. There is a, a dependence upon him. I can live in stronger faith. Number four, sometimes God will allow bad things to happen for his glory. 
In John chapter 9, there's a blind dude brought to Jesus. And this, this blind person's brought to Jesus, and his disciples whisper over to him, Hey, Lord, did this guy sin, or did um, his parents sin? Who did the really bad thing that made, it was, must have been really bad, dude's blind. And Jesus replies back and says, Neither, but that the glory of God might be revealed. Sometimes God will allow a difficult thing to happen so that he allows his glory to be seen. Number five, sometimes you'll never know the answer. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse number 17, the smartest man who ever lived says this, you can't comprehend the mind of God. I'm thankful that I can't. This past week I had a 19-year-old young man say to me, I just don't understand God, and that's really difficult for me. And I said to the 19-year-old young man, I said, I'm glad that there's things about God a 19-year-old guy can't understand. Aren't you? Aren't you glad you haven't understood everything about God at whatever age you are? And if you ever come to a place where you understand everything about God, that would make you God, and none of us want to live in that universe. You would then be omniscient. You would have a God-like understanding. So we don't want you to know everything about God. And, and none of you want me to know everything about God. There are certain times in life where I just say, I have to trust God. I, I just have to trust God. And that's okay. That's an answer. He's offended. He has legitimate pain. God, why would you do this? Legitimate pain or feelings should be nurtured, not just dismissed. The Bible says, now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, and be patient towards all men. There's not a suck-it-up buttercup attitude towards Joshua here. There's not a, you know what, this is all your fault. The Lord imbibes him to speak and to share his feelings. Number three, at the end of the day, look at what verse 10 says, excuse me, verse 9. For the Canaanites and the inhabitants in the land shall hear of it and shall environ us about and cut off the name from the earth. And what wilt thou do unto thy great name? This is what's interesting. After Joshua expresses his feelings, after Joshua questions God, he comes back to the understanding that is the default in his life. And this is the default that I challenge you to live in, that God's name is the most important. God's name is paramount. I have questions, and I don't even have all the answers. I have hurt feelings, and sometimes those feelings really hurt bad. But at the end of the day, Lord, it's about your name. I'm living in light of who you are. Psalm chapter 113 and verse 3 says, From the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, the name, the Lord's name is to be praised. See, God is eternal. We are just his creation. And since he is eternal, my life should be invested in advancing his cause and his kingdom because I'll be out of here in about 40, 50 years. I, I'm, I'm done. I'm checking out. But the Lord will remain. And so his cause is most vital. His name is more paramount. They might etch my name on a tombstone for crying out loud. They might put me in a little urn. I don't know what the plan is yet. I haven't thought that far ahead. Hopefully it's far enough ahead where I don't need to think about it today. But there's going to be a day when it won't matter about Matt Tice, but the name of the Lord is to be praised. So the six ingredients, six ingredients. How do I, 
How do I avoid these ingredients of failure? Number one, my name matter, who I am matters. It was just one person. Don't omit what God wants us to put into our lives. Don't be in a place where we are overconfident so that we become overtaken and find out about the obituary of sin. And when we are offended, remember, it's not God's fault. It's not God's fault. I live in light of who he is. We'll see next week how to restore this shattered existence. It's a tough thing to do, but God will bring us to that place. Father, thank you for your word and the time together today. Would you bless it and use it for your glory? And we ask this in Jesus' name. We hope that message was an encouragement to your heart. Now for weekly updates and for information about Liberty Baptist Church, be sure to follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook at LBC of Las Vegas. Well, that's it for today. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, God bless.